Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, when I think of the word help, the first thing that comes to mind is it's a little more niche than the Beatles song that we heard last night. I think this is what Mockingbird does so well. It does Taylor Swift and it does Scott Walker. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind um, is a place called Connecticut, actually. Fancy that, where we first met, Dave. Uh, maybe you've been there, it's not far from here. It's a place of Yankee sentiment, of can-doers, a lot of stiff upper lips. It's a state with many names, you probably know it as the Constitution State, but I know it as the land of steady habits. Can we have a slide, please? That's how the state um, first advertised itself. That's not me. Let's see. Yeah. My name's Caitlin Beattie. <laughs> and this is a dream. <laughs> I'll keep going. So, Connecticut advertised itself as the land of steady habits, as one history book said, in allusion to the strict morals of its inhabitants. They're really laying it on thick with tourism. Don't you want to go? I know Connecticut as the land of steady habits. Uh, because I vividly remember visiting a friend from prep school who lived in Connecticut. And in the house where he was raised, there it is, in the house where my friend was raised was a cross-stitched pillow. And in the middle of the pillow was this message. Can we have our next slide? If you need a helping hand, look at the other end of your arm. There's so much we could say about this pillow. This is not the exact pillow, by the way, this is but an accurate proxy. And keep in mind that this was long before cross-stitching got ironic. You know, before people started cross-stitching things like Yas Queen or Nicolas Cage's face. My friend and I, um, we never talked about this pillow like, it was never, it was never a, a humorous gag. There was no tongue-in-cheek delivery. Just deadpan sincerity. <laughs> Ever since, I've seen it as the unofficial state motto. Welcome to the land of steady habits. If you need a helping hand, look at the other end of your arm. <laughs> now, wherever you live, 
uh, I think most people live by this philosophy. We don't like asking for help. Um, I think one reason not to ask for help is that people aren't always that helpful, even when they're trying to be. When you ask for help, you are placing yourself at the mercy of the helper. If a three-year-old is helping his dad empty the dishwasher, the dad must accept that what would have taken three minutes to do is now going to take 23 minutes. If the husband wants to help his wife by going grocery shopping, the wife must risk that he will bring home yellow onions when she specifically requested shallots. This happens to a close friend of mine. <laughs> All the time. If the associate rector and recent seminary grad is preaching on, I don't know, Trinity Sunday, the rector must surrender to the likelihood that the sermon will be overly theological and emotionally impenetrable. <laughs> this is one reason why people micromanage. We would rather look to the hand at the other end of our arm than the hand outstretched toward us because, well, who knows if you can trust that hand? You don't know where that hand's been. Whenever you ask for help, you are at the mercy of the helper. But we may avoid help even when the helper is competent. Their helpfulness is an indicator of your helplessness. They have something you don't have, be it intellect or talent or a car. By asking for help, you have exposed yourself as someone who is not self-sufficient, someone who does not have it all together. And in that sense, self-sufficiency is synonymous with righteousness, at least in the land of steady habits. And whenever we are outed as unrighteous, we expect judgment. After all, if we are at the mercy of the helper, he may relish the power that he has over us. You may remember Nick Burns, the company computer guy, played by Jimmy Fallon in the 90s era of Saturday Night Live. Can we see a slide, please? There he is. It's not very nice. The series didn't age well uh, because it made fun of computer nerds. Didn't realize that computer nerds would, would soon be the real winners of the modern age, the rich and famous of our time. Nick Burns would come in to an office and make fun of these people who needed tech support. Someone would say, my laptop isn't working, and he would say, I'm pretty sure it's your brain that's not working. He would expose the truth that these office workers were incompetent, that they needed help, and then he would give them help at the cost of their dignity. Let's just see a short clip, please.
He's going to make fun of you because he's Nick Burns, the company computer guy. At the end of each episode, he would say, oh, and by the way, you're welcome. That was his tagline. You're welcome. It's just so annoying. Part of why we hate asking for help is because it requires a death of self in a way, our own self-sufficiency, our own pride. So what do we do? We avoid asking for help by putting off the problem at hand. We don't go to the mechanic until the check engine light is on. And by that time, of course, something's already broken. A few years ago, I remember it was, it was right before dinner time, and our refrigerator started to sound slightly off. Its normal low purr became something of a soft wheeze. When my wife made a passing remark about it, I, I shot back, it's fine, I think it does that sometimes. <laughs> As if I were defending the fridge for having been personally slighted. The next morning, the fridge was, um, in a word, squealing. It was so loud, I had to speak up in order for my wife to hear what I was saying. I think we should probably have someone take a look at it, I guess. She looked back at me with a very knowing look. Now, I need to be honest with you. Um, that was three years ago. I still have yet to get in touch with a repairman. Um, it's not as loud. It's back to the soft wheeze. We're taking it day by day. Um, can, we have, can we have the next slide? Can't really see it. It's a, it. The fridge has fallen over, and this woman is saying, first thing when you get home tonight, help me with the refrigerator. So deferred maintenance is our usual MO. There are things that aren't being fixed that need to be. The roof is leaking, but we've put buckets across the floor. Our knee hurts, but we don't mind limping a little. We feel overwhelmed, but therapy can be costly. So delaying upkeep in our lives seems to be a microcosm of how we deal with inadequacy and judgment. And the reason why I denied that my fridge needed to be fixed in the first place is twofold. One, I don't want to be the type of person that needs his fridge fixed. Thank you very much. And two, the necessary steps it would take to fix it are beyond my mental capacity at the moment. Life is hard enough as it is, and a broken fridge may be all it takes to send me over the edge. I do not want to be at the mercy of the repairman or Lowe's. When modest crises like these present themselves, we might attempt a quick fix and hope for the best, cross our fingers, but Lord knows the piper will always get paid and any delay will only accrue interest. In other words, you can fight the law of life, but the law will always win. And yet after the law convicts us, that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves, God has a way of entering stage left. There's evidence in the Bible that Jesus 
is, as the Book of Common Prayer says, an ever-present help in time of trouble. An example that comes to mind is the wedding at Cana. Can we have our next slide, please? A reading from John. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to, th to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to me and to you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the person in charge of the banquet. So they took it. When the person in charge tasted the water that had drawn, that had become water, sorry, that had become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, that person called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk but you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. So it's not exactly an emergency. It's not a matter of life and death. Jesus does not even really seem to care about the issue. When Mary tells him they have no wine, he doesn't say, oh my gosh, thanks for telling me, be right back. He basically says, it's not my problem. It's not your problem either. He seems fine with the party host squirming a little bit. There's a, there's a looming possibility that he is like a Nick Burns type character. And who knows what the party host was experiencing at the time. Maybe he was already drunk under the table. Maybe he was responsible for drinking most of the wine himself. Or maybe his extended family didn't RSVP and is taking full advantage of the open bar to his horror. But whatever the case, it never says the host asks for help. There's a good chance he thought it was too late for that. The wedding host didn't make a call when the wine was running low. It had already run out. They have no wine, Mary says therapist friend of mine says that by the time some married couples meet for counseling, one of them thinks it's already too late. The damage has been done. The contempt has calcified. In the face of all sorts of problems, we often think it's too late to ask for help. And sadly, maybe sometimes it is. But the Bible is full of these situations. The disciples don't check the forecast before heading out to sea and they're caught in a storm and it is too late to turn back. Jairus' daughter is already dead when Jesus walks in the room. Lazarus has been dead for four days, his body decomposing. These are all situations where help from a human perspective came much too late. We will keep the crises of our lives at bay as long as possible, even if that may only delay the wideness of God's mercy rushing in to meet us there. 
But the good news is that God works all things together for good. All things means all things. All things means that one particular thing, whatever it is, that you happen to be putting off right now. He is working that out, as well as the subsequent breakdown, for good. We can trust this because God did not keep our need at arm's length. Nor did he wait for us to ask for help, but drew all of our need to himself. We were at the mercy of the helper to do for us what we could not do ourselves, and he really came through. Jesus' death was anything but a quick fix. On the cross, God used his broken body to restore the world once for all. This kind of help is not collaborative. It is not help me help you. This is help for the helpless. Think of the bumper sticker that everyone who's rescued an animal puts on their car. Can we see the slide? Who rescued who? It says. Now, this is a, it's a really sweet thought that some forsaken animal actually rescued its owner from loneliness. God does not have that bumper sticker on his car. <laughs> who rescued who? I rescued you, God says. It's not a mutual saving. There's no codependency with God. There's just dependency. Healthy engagement with God, you see, is fueled by need. Lord, please help me because I cannot help myself. God, please help my child because I cannot help her anymore. These kinds of prayers are always made after our own self-sufficiency has been laid to rest. When everything else has been tried or after we have avoided the problem for far too long. And yet the book of Hebrews says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In fact, God is actually put off by human competency because human competency distracts us from the fact that we need God every second of every day. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Any attempt towards self-sufficiency will inevitably result in self-righteousness and arrogance and judgment. Just like Nick Burns, the company computer guy. In the moments where it feels too late to ask for help, we have spiritually died to our own self-sufficiency. We have given up hope of swimming to shore on our own and have already gone under. And thankfully, it is only after we have died that God can do anything with us or for us. And how exactly does he help us? Well, Robert Capon, our patron saint here, he paints a picture 
of how Jesus comes to our help after it's too late. He depicts a summer scene on a crowded beach on a sunny day. Can we have our next slide, please? Just in case you forgot what a beach looks like. The surf is up. There's bad undertow. So the lifeguard puts up the no swimming sign. And as people are reluctantly getting out of the water, someone suddenly points out to sea and shouts, there's somebody out there. A girl, in fact, is about 100 yards out, arms flailing, shouting for help. The lifeguard dives in, swims out to the girl. Everyone is expecting him to bring her safely back to shore. But just as he reaches her, he pauses and then goes under and does not come back up. Eventually, to everyone's horror, the little girl goes under as well. The crowd on the beach is aghast. How could something like like that happen? It makes no sense. And then in cinematic fashion, Capon draws our attention back to the lifeguard tower where a clipboard has been left lying on the seat. And it reads... It's all okay. Trust me. She's safe in my death. Capon admits that this story is disturbing, but that it accurately shows that Christianity is not, it does not merely have a dark side, but a dark center. It reveals that we are saved not by Jesus' life, but in his death. It reveals that we are not saved by our efforts to be self-sufficient, but instead in our own death, in Christ. Vincent van Gogh, he once said this about when we finally turn to God. Can we have the next slide, please? He said, it always strikes me, and it is very peculiar that whenever we see the image of indescribable and unutterable desolation of loneliness, poverty, and misery, the end and extreme of things, the thought of God comes into one's mind. Now when we talk about the end and extreme of things, we are often talking about when it is too late to ask for help. When you are at the end and extreme of things, you are not looking for a little help from your friends. You are not looking for advice or even guidance. You're looking for someone to do what you cannot do yourself. One of my favorite shows is the romantic comedy Catastrophe. We have our next slide. There they are, Rob and Sharon. It's about a man played by Rob Delaney, who on a business trip to London has a fling with an Irish woman played by Sharon Horgan, and she gets pregnant, and they become a couple and get married. The show does not involve actual catastrophes like earthquakes and hurricanes, but the catastrophes of everyday life. It accurately portrays how catastrophic 
daily life actually feels. The family dog getting hit by a car. Sharon's father developing dementia. And one night, after successfully hiding his drinking problem for years, Rob gets in a serious car accident. The accident itself is not his fault, but in the wreckage, he has to confess to Sharon that he's been drinking that night and that he wasn't going to pass the breathalyzer test. The accident is when his need for help is exposed before he ever asks for help. We have the next slide, please. His sentence is light. He's assigned to work at a charity shop on weekends and attend AA. But Sharon is understandably livid and upset by his breach of trust. That is, until Sharon herself is caught shoplifting alongside her kids and is mercilessly reprimanded by a security guard. She's released, but rattled. And by that point, both Rob and Sharon are humbled and terrified by having done crimes that they did not think they were capable of committing. We're going to watch a one-minute clip of the two of them talking. And by this time, Rob has already apologized for breaking Sharon's trust, and Sharon has forgiven him. And it's poignant that Rob is still wearing a neck brace from his accident. In the clip, Sharon confesses her sin, and while she shamefully admits that she stole a dinosaur pillow and a pair of jeans, I want you to notice Rob's face. It is not one of judgment and disgust. Let's see the clip. He tones it down, he ends up listening to her. But helping her in this moment is not righting her wrongs. It's too late to help her to not shoplift. But it's not too late to redeem her from sin. We have the next slide. Anton Chekhov once said, it is the writer's business not to accuse and not to prosecute, but to champion the guilty once they are condemned and suffer punishment. You see, the law has condemned both Rob and Sharon. They have been found guilty. And yet by grace, they champion each other as their own beloved. 
This is what I think the writers at Mockingbird aim to do. Not to accuse and not to prosecute, but after they have already been condemned, to champion the guilty. Because that is what Jesus has done for us. We tell him our secret sins and misdeeds dark. And in response, he tries to keep from laughing. He calls our worst mistakes garden variety cries for help. He is not disgusted, but delighted to remove all our sins from us and offer a loving embrace after we thought it was far too late. So the next time you need a helping hand, when you are cast out from the land of steady habits, you will do well to look beyond the hand at the other end of your arm and to look at the hands that were nailed to the cross. You see, Jesus introduces another type of cross stitch. See what I did there? His are the hands that are ever outstretched to help in our time of need. His are the hands that are at the other end of death. His are the hands that will bring you into life. Amen.